I, I heard someone say here a week ago or so that if you believe that you can be a Christian and not a disciple, that you are living heresy. I don't know that that's the exact right phrase to use, and I think it highlights the confusion that there is between what being saved is and what being a disciple is. So we want to find some clarity today with both of those. I think that we could say that if you think you're not a disciple, that you are misunderstood, that, that, that it, it is a tragedy, because I think there are some people who are saved who are not disciples, and I think that that would be a tragedy. So today we want to gain clarification on what being a disciple is, what that means, and what it's going to cost you. Or, let's put it this way, what it could cost you. Because the cost is going to be different for everyone. And I think there is a cost for everyone, but the cost is different. There are people who commit their lives to Christ, become disciples today, and it costs them their lives. There are others that give their lives to Christ, become disciples, and the cost is something that is, is much less obtrusive. And we'll talk about that as we get into this a little bit more. I want to start before we get into our text by looking at five things that help us to understand the, the, the contrast and comparison between Christ, being a Christian and being a disciple. And the necessity, the necessity of us being a disciple. And, and I want to start by, by, by saying, first of all, the definition of a Christian and a disciple. And we find the word Christian used three times in the New Testament. It's a, it's a biblical term, Christian. In, in Acts 11, 25 and 26, this is where it says they were first called Christians. Listen to what it says. Then Barnabas departed from uh, uh, Tarshish and to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Saul had been on, we don't know what was going on with Saul during these years. He started off really strong, then he kind of disappears for a few years, then he comes back to Antioch. So this is, is Saul coming back. And it says, so it was that for a whole year they assembled at the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, this ought to put a lot to rest when it comes to what's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? Because it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. We often think you become a Christian first and then you become a disciple. Now, the term Christian, the etymology of the word is that it comes from a Greek word that means anointed, the anointed. It's connected to Christ. It's Christos is the Greek word. And there is a Latin adjacent ending. So it's a word that's a mixture. It's Greek and Latin together. So, so there's a Latin adjacent ending, which means to belong to and is often used to speak of slaves. Slaves who belonged to someone. Remember, there were 40 million slaves in Rome at the time of Christ. And so Christians identified themselves. Some believe that this was used as mockery towards Christians. You know, you belong to the anointed one. You're a slave of the anointed one. That's Christi uh, Christian could be translated that way. But we took it. We were like, yes. I mean, the Bible says we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. 
And, and we are, and, and Paul said, I'm a bondservant of, of Jesus Christ, which is, a, which is a slave by choice. A bondservant is one who has chosen to be a slave. So whether or not it was derogatory in the beginning, we don't know. People suggest that. But we take it proudly. I belong to Christ. I am a Christian. I am his. My life is not my own. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, Paul said in Galatians, but it is Christ who lives in me. Now, a disciple, we understand that, right? A disciple, um, Aristotle had disciples, Plato had disciples. These were Greek philosophers that had disciples who were learning from them. So a disciple literally means a learner. And in the Middle East, in Judaism, uh, all rabbis had disciples. This is a way that you enrolled in a class to learn and grow. John the Baptist had disciples, and some of the disciples of John the Baptist became disciples of Jesus as well. So we are a learner when we come to Christ. You don't come to Christ and go, okay, I'm a Christian. I give my life to the Lord. I'm done learning. That's why we do what we do here. So we can grow and we can learn. It's why I pour into the scriptures that I might grow and I might learn. So that's the, the, the difference between a Christian and a disciple. And I don't know that there really will ever be a distinction. The, the second is how we become a disciple. The second thing we should understand. And when, when you become a Christian, you receive Jesus. You invite him into your life and your spirit is born again. You are born in the spirit and there's a transformation that takes place. There is some controversy today as to repentance. Uh, do you repent in order to become a Christian? Uh, is repentance the act of becoming a Christian? And there is this, this free grace that is taught, which doesn't even really make sense because grace is free, right? I, I'm gonna tell you guys, I, I really disagree with both positions. But a free, grace is free. So when you say free grace, it's you're, you're doubling up on something. And then this easy believism that they're saying that we in the church are teaching an easy believism, a Christianity without repentance. And, and I, I disagree with both positions. And, and I really want to take a study in the future and dive into all of that so we can really understand what they're saying and, and, and what these two movements are all about. But when you become a Christian, you are changed. You come to Christ without any works. You don't have to do any works to be saved. And then you are transformed. You become a new person. You, there, there are things that, that, you are, that are changed in your life and you become a disciple. So that, and as we're gonna see in just a moment, there can be a distinction between being saved and being a disciple. That can happen but it's not God's design at all. God's design is that we are saved, we invite Christ into our lives, we are transformed, and now we are his disciples. That some don't ever get to be disciples or that they aren't is tra a tragedy, but we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where we have this account told us about our Bema seat of judgment, that we as Christians, are gonna be judged, but it's not the great white seat of judgment. Daniel chapter seven talks about the ancient of days, the son of man gathering together, the books being gathered and the books being opened and a great number of people before them. That's the judgment day. I've escaped that, praise God. 
I will not stand before Jesus as a, a judge because I have received him as my savior and the same is true for you. But my works are gonna be judged. And if I have good motives in what I do, then I'm gonna receive a reward, which always amazes me. God calls us, God empowers us. God's the one who gifts us. And then he goes, and here's some rewards for what you did. It's like, thank you. <laughs> you, did, you did it all through us and we get rewards, but I could have wrong motives for what I'm doing. And so the, the works that I do are gonna be tested by fire. These are not works to be saved, right? They're works that happen afterwards. They're gonna be tested by fire. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he shall receive a reward. If it's tested by fire and it endures, you receive a reward for that. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. The rewards will not be there, but himself will be saved as though through fire. So you're just going to kind of make it into heaven and maybe, you know, people run over and pat these people, you know, whoo, you're here. It's okay. You almost didn't make it. And, and I always think you never really want to be there because there are some people that just make it in. There's got to be some people who just barely don't make it in. So it's not really a place that you want to be at. You want to make sure that you evaluate your life regularly, that you're asking yourself, am I doing what I'm doing out of selfish ambition? Am I doing what I'm doing to be seen by men? Because that's what Jesus condemned them for. Is, do you just desire to, be, to look like you're spiritual because that's what these scribes and Pharisees did? These kind of things will be burned away and a genuine heart for the lost, a genuine work for Christ will be revealed. The fourth thing that helps us to understand this contrast and comparison between the disciples is some of the things that Jesus said about discipleship. And they're pretty heavy. He, he, here we have a couple of them in Luke 14, verses 26 and 27. And I don't have time to talk about all the things that he says about discipleship. But Jesus does say, count the cost. Don't start and then stop. Make sure you know before you start. So here's what he says in Luke 14, 26 and 27 about discipleship. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty radical statement. Jesus taught this kind of teaching style where periodically he would throw in some things that would make them go, what does he mean? I like that. I'm too scared to teach that way because I'm afraid people will have a misunderstanding. Jesus wasn't. If you don't hate your wife, you can't be my disciple. That's meant for you to go, what's he talking about? Because we know we're told over and over again, right? Husbands, agape your wives. Wives, be nice to your husbands. <laughs> it literally uses the word phileo, friendship, love. Husbands, agape your wives and wives, be nice to your husbands, all right? So we know we can't be saying that we're supposed to hate but he's saying that the love that we have for God is our first love. It is, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. And that love that you have for God is to be a greater love than any other love. And, if it, and even more than your own life, right? Because your own life is added in there. 
and your own life also. Do you love God more than you love your own life? And if you do, then there shouldn't be any sacrifice that you aren't willing to make. If you commit your life to Christ today, will there be a cost tomorrow? I got to think for those of us here, maybe not a big cost, but someday, someday there, there will be a cost. I got to think in other places, maybe someone's watching online. There's a great revival happening in Arab worlds today. If someone gets saved in Iran, and, and there are, there's a, there's, God's doing a wondrous work in Iran, they know this may cost me my life. It's going to cost me my family. They know there's a high cost to it, but yet they're willing to do it, and they give their lives to Christ. People are getting saved there. And so the second thing he says here is in the middle of this, he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is before the cross was a religious symbol. Crucifixion is probably, well, it is the most brutal thing that you could do to somebody. To pin them to a, a tree by driving nails through their hands and feet and to leave them there to suffer and die. And that Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And when someone was, was, was condemned, they would carry their own cross. And Jesus, of course, was so brutally beaten, he couldn't carry it all the way. And Simon, uh, the Cyrene, had to carry it the rest of the way for him. But when we see, you see someone carrying their cross, you know their life is over. And so he's literally saying, when, when you become a Christian, you are no longer living for yourself. But you are now living for God. That's pretty heavy. And, and I think if some knew that, and you know, we talk about the easy believism versus free grace. We talk about that argument. We can understand why some would think we're, people are teaching easy believism because they're not telling them this is going to cost you. You're no longer living for yourself. That's why Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. That you begin to live for him. Now the fifth, and then we're going to get into our, our, our text. The fifth here that helps us to understand this contrast and comparison of what discipleship is, helps us to understand that there's not a lot of difference between the two. And this is the Great Commission. We know it well. You guys know this passage well. It's in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. But thinking about what it means to be a Christian, listen to what it says. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a pretty amazing statement, by the way. If we're doing his bidding now, we are under the entire authority that has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Again, that's why we do what we do here. We're teaching the things of Jesus, right? And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We are not told to go make Christians we are told to go make disciples. And so there really isn't a difference between the two. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but not a disciple. And when Jesus says things like, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple, we understand the transformation that has to take place to where we are now living wholeheartedly for him. So let's get into our text now. We pick this up in verse 51. 
And the first thing that we learn is that Jesus now sets his face towards Jerusalem. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration about his departure. And as he comes down, he begins to travel towards Jerusalem. Verse 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, this cross, his resurrection, his ascension, it's time that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The sacrifice of Christ marching towards Jerusalem, knowing that that crucifixion, death awaited him there, was something he needed to do. He needed to set his face towards it. And he says he sent messengers to go before his face, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now he's passing through. He sends people to make arrangements for them to stay there. The Samaritans are a different people group. The Samaritans don't like the Jewish people. The Jewish people don't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans don't worship in Jerusalem. They worship on Mount Gerizim. They have a temple, their own temple. We, by the way, archaeologists have discovered the temple that is on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans worshiped in, gave sacrifices in. And remember the woman at the well? Jesus chose a Samaritan woman to reveal that he was the Messiah for the first time. And not only was she a Samaritan woman, she was a woman who had been married five times and was living with a man at the time. And Jesus shows the kind of people he came to reach by reaching her and by showing her that he's the Messiah. Then it says he spent three days there with the Samaritans so that they finally said to the woman, now we believe that he's the Messiah, not because you told us, but because we've seen it with our own eyes. So this is a, another city of Samaria. But they did not receive him. They're, they're not happy with him. Why? Because his face was set for the journey in Jerusalem. Maybe they had said to Jesus, stay with us for a while. And Jesus is like, no, I must go to Jerusalem. I've got to go to Jerusalem. And this angers them. It upsets them. And they don't receive him because of that. And then the disciples, James and John, two brothers, right? Two of the inner circle, Again, this isn't the last year of the ministry of Jesus. These guys have been around Jesus for two years now. Then James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. They'd seen Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now they're thinking, let's burn them up. Let's get them. I got to think they were this way before. I'll tell you why that's the case. They kind of had this little edge to them. There, there are certain Christians you'll meet that'll have an edge. There's others that you will meet that will be more gracious. It's just kind of the, the different flavors we take. I think that these guys have an edge to them. It says, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. It, it, it'd be like me saying, if you want to give your life to Jesus, then raise your hand. If you don't, I'm going to call fire down from heaven and burn you up. Jesus is like, mm, you don't know what spirit you are of. Listen to what Jesus says. And this is early in the book of Mark. So this is earlier in the ministry. These guys had to display this kind of a, of a heart before. In, in, in Mark 3, verse 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bo, um, Bonerges, that is sons of thunder. 
So he, he nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. People will ask me, do you think that Jesus had a sense of humor? Absolutely, I think he had a sense of humor. He saw these guys with their edginess and was like, Sons of Thunder, come on. And I imagine this became a point where the other disciples kind of piled on a little bit. So when they leave there and they're now making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus runs into people who want to become a Christian, want to become a, a follower of Jesus, and people who he invites to be followers. But there's something that keeps them from doing it. Again, kind of accounting the cost idea. So we get these three stories here, these three accounts, but they're only, we don't learn what happens to them. They're, they're put here together, obviously to make one point for us. Because otherwise they would give the story and what happens and whether or not they received them or whether or not they followed. We don't get any of that. We just get the very beginning here. And it's meant for us to reflect on our own personal commitment to Christ and whether or not we are like these guys. So it, we pick it up in verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And that's a, that's a great commitment, right? Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Maybe you've said the same thing. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I know when I was 19 years old and I had been backslidden for a year and God came after me, by the way, God literally took everything from me. And he says, I'll leave the 99 and I'll go after the one. And when I came back, it was a complete surrender by me. I, I, th this is the phrase I said when I came back. I came back and I was in my room. It was late at night. And I said, okay, Lord, no longer what I want, but whatever you want. And that was a reflection of my problem up until that point. Not just be a backsliding, but even before that, that I wanted what I wanted and I wanted Jesus to help me get what I wanted. And that's not what Christianity is. So I, I said something similar to it. No longer what I want, but whatever you want. And so Jesus says, and by the way, we learn from Matthew, and this is, helps us. We learn from Matthew that this is a scribe that says this. This is a scribe that comes to him. What did Jesus said earlier about scribes? They love to stand on street corners and pray to themselves to be seen by men. They love to wear robes that have, have huge sleeves in it so they can look really spiritual. So he says, don't be like these guys. So this guy, and, and by the way, scribes also were wealthier. And so Jesus says, foxes have holes. He said to him, this guy, I'll go wherever you want to go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. We don't have the response from the scribe, but I think by what Jesus is saying, it becomes obvious. There, there's going to be a cost. This isn't, what you think. It's not just a new form of being a scribe. There's a cost to it. Now we learn later on as we get into the book of Acts and we get into the, the epistles, the Bible literally says, tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches because they can fail and be willing to share. So we know he's not saying, give all your money away. He's saying, be willing to share and don't trust in those things. But there's obviously something here where this guy thought, I'm going to serve Christ and there's not going to be a cost. And he just happened to choose the time when something really heavy is happening. Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem to go die there. 
And the guy says, I'll go wherever you want to go. And Jesus is like, you want to go with me? <laughs> I don't even have a place to put my head down. And so this was a particular point where the cost became evident. And I would suggest that there is a point where the cost becomes evident for all of us. I'm not saying that living for Jesus as a disciple has this constant cost to it. That every day is a is huge cost. I'm just saying the cost will become evident at some point or another. And that all will, will all have a cost for, for our discipleship, but it will be different. There's different levels. Not everybody's treated the same. There's different levels and different costs that are asked to be paid in this discipleship. So we come to the second person, and this person is invited by Jesus to follow him. The first one just kind of came up, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. And so in verse 59, then said another, follow me. And, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, which seems like a very reasonable request. I, I, was, I was on my way to bury my dad. I'll bury him and then I'm going to come follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. It seems pretty harsh. One pastor said Jesus doesn't seem very Jesus-like here because we see all the nice things Jesus says. Now, some say that this is a euphemism that he was saying to him, I, I want to follow you, but my dad's not dead yet. I have responsibilities in my family and I can't come follow you until after my dad's dead and I buried him. Maybe. I don't know that I've seen any evidence of that. When, when someone uses something that's ultra-biblical like that, it's nice if you can get some evidence for it. it. This is where it was used. This is how people used to use it. So maybe, maybe that's correct. Or maybe this guy was just saying, I got something to do first. I got to bury my dad first. Like maybe this is just him saying, I'll follow you, but not right now. When I was in high school, me and a friend of mine took a class on auto upholstery. In, in Highland High School, they had had a class for auto upholstery. That's where I learned to, to do it, and I had several businesses after that. In fact, he started a shop out of his garage, and I started a shop out of my garage. In reality, they were our mother's garages. <laughs> but we started shops out of them, and he had a, a big job to do, and he asked if I would come help him. So as I was over at his house helping him with this, you know, upholstery job, I shared Christ with him. And he was, he was interested. And I said, you want to become a Christian? I'm like, you want to pray with me? And he said, well, like, if I do, do I have to give up sex? <laughs> he, was, he was engaged. He was just a few months away from being married. And I said, yeah, but hey, you're engaged, you know, you just wait. And, and he was like, I'll do it after I get married. <laughs> That's the idea. The idea here is I got to go do this. By the way, I shared Christ with him twice after that, after he was married, and he never did give his life to the Lord. Because it's not always, when you look at it and you're close, it's, there's always something. There's always something that will keep you away. If you really want to make that commitment, you're going to go, I'll make it. And whatever, whatever I have to do and change, whatever happens in my life, then I'm willing to do that. You'll make that kind of commitment. And so I think that's what's happening here. And I think the next one is along those same lines. In verse 61, this is the third account. And another said to him, Lord, I will follow you. 
Maybe this happened at the same time, the other guy. But he said, but let me first go and bid farewell to my house. I'm going to follow you. I just can't do it right now. I got to go say goodbye. Which doesn't seem like it would take very much time. Again, it's a very reasonable request, right? Hey, I'll help you. Uh, I'll help you move. But first of all, I, I got to go talk to my family. I'll be back. You just be happy to get the help. Okay. Hope you come back. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So, so that when you begin to do the work of the gospel, that you aren't to look back into your old life. And there are some reflections here in this one of the Old Testament. When Elisha followed Elijah, he was plowing a field and he left and he followed him. And so the idea is that we are to hear and now say, I'll follow you. But there are many who look back. There are many who have accounted the cost. There are many who are, I'm going to say false conversions, whether or not that's a, a, a real statement or not, I don't know. But you've got these people that come to Christ, walk with them, but as soon as times get tough, they leave. And, and you haven't counted the cost. So Jesus said you're not fit for the kingdom of God if you put your hands to the plow and then you look back. So that difficulties and hardships, well, I don't know how close they are. I don't know what the, the, how close the cost is for you. I had talked about the, the Christians, people who are becoming Christians in uh, Iran. Also, it's happening in Israel. There are, today, there are more Jewish people becoming Messianic Jews than ever before. Completed Jews, they'll say. They'll, they use the term. Because they're receiving their Messiah. They're completing their Judaism. But there's a cost to that immediately. Because they are shunned and, and their, their family is shocked. There is a history between Christianity and Judaism. And, and persecution. And so they will, there, there's a price they pay. But among the Palestinians, they are becoming Christians. There's a move among the Palestinians. And they're coming to Christ. They might pay even a greater price when they come to Christ. But, but both Jew and, and Gentile, Jew and Palestinian, are becoming brothers in Christ together over this huge conflict that's in the land today. And I just bring them up because they're paying a price right away where if you're here today and you're saying, now I'm going to become a Christian, I don't know what price you'll pay. That may be great for a while. Then you may lose it all. That happened to Job. Job said in Job 121, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, and in this Job didn't sin. And in none of this did Job sin, even though he had lost everything. So I will give you an opportunity here in a moment for you to say to him, Lord, I want you in my life and I understand the cost. I understand that there will be a price and that I am laying down my life to live for you. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can spend time today talking about this difference between, really perceived difference between being a Christian and a disciple 
when in reality it's the same thing. We are, when we are, when we become Christians, when we belong to you, there is a price that is paid, as Jesus taught us, as we are learners from you. And we pray now that you would help us who perhaps haven't really thought this through, Christians who are here that haven't really thought through the, the, the cost that we would say to you, Lord, our lives are yours. We don't know what you would ask us to surrender and give up and what the cost might be, but we will live for you regardless of the cost. And I pray for those that have never made a commitment to you that you give them the boldness to take the next step. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.